a traditional engineering mindset doesn't work in our world and as part of managing and leading a business, um, it can often be quite um, an organisational challenge to find the right type of people who recognise that their base discipline, their core discipline, provides a foundation or a framework for thinking and analysis and but you can show and lead in a different way that unleashes that creativity. Kiora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're talking with BVT Engineering's Chief Executive, Kynwin McNeil, and Founder and Managing Director, Matt Bishop. Together, they're a dynamic leadership duo driven to continuously improve, increase profit, and enhance market position through a strong vision, culture, and innovation. An approach that has seen BVT not only expand into the Australian market, but also revolutionise the traditional engineering industry and structure by creating an agile, diverse, young and highly skilled workforce, introducing BD and marketing departments as a core part of business and establishing value pricing. So I was really interested um, coming across you guys through your social media conversations and the persona of BVT was really innovative or was talking about the challenges, looking at things in a new way and, and it had a likability about it as well. Um, and then, of course, the people behind that are yourselves. So tell us a bit more around BVT and what you guys stand for. Mm. Uh, a quick um, history, I guess. Uh, BVT is 12 years old now and uh, started off as Bishop Vehicle Technologies and the idea was going to be to make electric motorcycles um, and uh, ride those up and down the Southern Alps. That was 12 years, maybe even 20 years ahead of what, what was doable and uh, it turned out that mechanical engineering was was the was the thing that paid the bills at that point, and uh, did uh, fuel tanks and did a lot of mobile machinery and uh, and cranes and uh, things like that in the PECPA side of things. And then Christchurch had the big earthquake, which uh, changed the landscape literally, and uh, in the business sense as well. And we went through a lot of different work types over that time uh, did a lot of uh, mobile machinery there was uh, 500 excavators inside the city bounds at one point and uh, then we did uh, civil works and uh, we did trench shields and we did uh, sheet piling and we we did a coffer dam across the Heathcote at one point and uh, that work uh, peaked and dipped pretty quick and then the vertical infrastructure took off and it was um, during uh, during the vertical rebuilds, that uh, interior seismic became a key a key focus, became a key issue for the market. Uh, somebody needed to become an expert in it, so we did, and uh, that quickly grew into a national um, expertise and then a international expertise, and uh, so pretty varied 
uh, origin story for the company, but it allowed us to understand the similarities across the different the different ways of doing things, uh, the similarities in the codes, the similarities in the methods and the engineering, and start to see these repeating patterns. Um, and to be frank, starting to get a little bit bored of doing the same things over and over again and looking for newer, faster, more interesting ways to do things. So I originally met Matt um, at Harvard Business School where we were attending a program called Leading Professional Services Firms and um, a cohort of South Africans, Australians and Kiwis all bundled together in a very cold Boston. And it was a really interesting program because it was all about professional services and how strategy needs to be different to a corporate environment. And BVT became my first client post attending Harvard. And one of the things that really struck me about the organisation was how irrelevant the engineering was becoming, which is a very unpopular thing to say, um, particularly five years ago. And um, the aspects of our evolution from an engineering consulting firm to really something that's much more like a, in lots of ways, like a Silicon Valley tech startup, um, has its origins in Matt's experiences post-earthquake, but also in recognising that professional services, be it engineering, be it accounting, um, be it law, um, those skills have rapidly become commoditized and you've got these amazing intelligent dynamic individuals undertaking repeatable work um, work that can be codified work that can be systematized and it's like imagine if we took out all those repeatable elements and used that brain power to shift onto what I would call wicked problems in our society and that might be environmental issues it might be um uh, urban regeneration it might be how do we look at disaster resilience in developing economies around the world and using that brain power to really change the world and that's what we're so passionate about back to your comments around our social media presence and um how do we communicate that to the market it's very much uh, um we believe that what we build we believe that what we design we believe what we learn can be taken and replicated. We don't need to squirrel it and hold on to it. It's like we can actually improve society by sharing our, our intellect. And we can only do that if we speak human. And we need to speak human through the channels we have available to us, which in this day and age are very much social media. Um, but we need to be, we need to translate. And I believe that is the key to making a difference and because you need to be able to translate to all sorts of audiences, not just technical audiences, but those who may be sitting in parallel industries or parallel worlds that are excited about shifting but don't necessarily know how to engage with different cohorts that can help tap into those skill sets. So um, it's pretty exciting what we're doing. Yeah, it is amazing. And I think both of you have mentioned um, the role of engineers and uh, we've had conversations um, outside of this podcast around if you look at automation and um, 
like what you were saying, Carmen, basically the codification of the knowledge that engineers have so that it, it, it actually isn't the unique value that the engineer brings to a project. What you're left with is the creativity and the potential problem solving for these wicked problems. But of course, engineers are not known for their creativity. So how confrontational and difficult do you think this is? Do you think people are going to rise to the challenge or are they going to be feeling um, intimidated by it? I'll start off with my answer to that question and then we'll hand over to Matt. Um, and I often start meetings, Troy, with um, a disclaimer, and that is that I'm not an engineer. Um, I'm actually a government affairs and regulatory expert um, probably from my from my past life, and I've experienced first, firsthand how offended engineers can be, can be when you say the engineering is not the most important thing that you're doing in our in our land um and as consultants it's the insight that we provide and that sounds very trite um but the experience that we've had in our working environment is um a traditional engineering mindset doesn't work in our world and as part of managing and leading a business um it can often be quite um an organisational challenge to find the right type of people who recognise that their base discipline, their core discipline, provides a foundation or a framework for thinking and analysis and but you can show and lead in a different way that unleashes that creativity and stepping into quite a different world where they're sitting at a table with people um, actually going their value I'm not the value that I'm providing here is not actually my engineering value. It's about thinking about the project. It's about thinking about um, the efficiencies. It's thinking about how do we make the world a better place. But um, I think it helps that we have a very young team. So BVT has an average age of about 25 in our team. And um, often what is exciting for, and we have a a real mix because diversity is important, quite important to us as well, which I think we'll probably come back to, is um, that diversity of thought is just critical to helping us think creatively within the world. But that creativity can only come when you've built the system and the machine that um, really has been pioneered. The engineering uh, mindset is very interesting. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how engineers think uh, it's always been a wee bit perplexing because a lot of our team are very creative. We've got a guy who's, who's carved his own surfboard out of a block of wood. We've got guys that have made hydrofoils and made their own uh, mountain bike parts and all all sorts of stuff like that. Work on cars in their weekends and and uh, paint and um, all, all kind oh dance <laughs> um, all kinds of things in their spare time. Very creative. But they come into the um, they come into the office. They put on the engineering hat. They put on the engineering mindset, and then they're very analytical. It is one step, then the next step, then the next step. And um, if if you move things around a bit, uh, it, it does not compute anymore. Like and um, it's challenging because that's that analytical mindset uh, is the easiest part to automate. That is part that basically runs like a program and it's everything else that they can bring to a problem that's actually valuable and more and more so uh, but uh, 
you've got to pull those two things apart before you can start to start to automate one and uh, get value out of the out of the human skill sets. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I think that um, the creativity isn't something that probably in their training is really fostered or, you know, that technical um, strength is really around the what they know in terms of the, the, the basic principles of engineering rather than how to apply those in creative ways. Yeah, creativity is uh, a detriment. It's, it's, um, it's not fostered at all um, in the sense so... A, um, a PS1, a, a design certificate, I believe on reasonable grounds that this complies with the building code that's, that we sign off on, and that reasonable grounds is a set of facts or points, bang, 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 that you can prove back to a standard, back to a calculation. There's no room for creativity yep. in that part of the process. Mm-hmm. And there's all this risk aversion as well because the consequences yeah. of getting things wrong, you really have to be relying on pl- black and white data and evidence and, yeah, there isn't a lot of scope for bringing in creativity in that regard. Um, so one of the um, reasons uh, it's been explained to me universities exist, which I really liked this quote, that um, they exist to be the conscience of society. What do you think the big picture role of engineers is for society? Um, conscience of society. Troy, what an awesome definition there. Quite a few years ago, when I was much younger, I worked for a very senior woman who um, I had wanted to employ, this particular young woman who hadn't had the, um, hadn't actually completed her university degree. And the woman that I was working for said to me, um, why do you want to employ her? She hasn't finished her degree. And I said, well, I actually think from a society perspective, not everyone has the opportunity to complete tertiary education and I don't think that should hold um, people back from opportunities because we have different different experiences and different um, ways of learning and contributing. And she, very senior woman, um, and she said to me, going to university is not about what you learn, it's about the discipline. It's about the discipline of thinking. It's about the discipline of working within a framework and meeting deadlines and having the opportunity to work with people who haven't come from the same um, background as you, that haven't come from your own. And that's actually what, you know, that's the real world. You're going to step into workplaces. You're going to step into clubs. You're going to step into society where people have had very different experiences shaping their shaping their lives and what concerns me is not that this young woman doesn't have a degree my concern is that she hasn't had the discipline to to go out but if you would like to employ her you go ahead of course it was a terrible hire and I learned a really valuable lesson that to this day um, it's not necessarily about the degree but it's about the demonstration of tenacity it's about the demonstration of you know can you um, complete within a particular environment and that might be a polytechnic here, it might be a TAFE, it might be a short course, but, you know, that ability to um, learn how to think in a particular way is highly valuable, but essentially that's like that's a foundation piece. It's then what, how do the influences that you have, how do you um, continue to learn and that's something that we really 
um, are very focused on within our world. We don't believe that we have the right answers just within the engineering sector. So I'll hippity hop and look at um, things from what's happening in health reform, what's happening in economic regulation, what's happening in terms of um, the investment community and how they're looking to get greater uh, diversity in their thinking and allocation of capital to projects that are now looking at environmental, social and governance aspects um, because there's a the world is recognising that it is to its detriment if we just all stick within our our single, you know, to quote Daddy Dancing, it's like this is my dance space, this is your dance space and the world that we are living in has such high levels of complexity and the problems and challenges that we're looking at we need to be able to kind of really have that that melting pot of society. And I'm excited with, and we work very closely with Engineering New Zealand and also um, in Australia as well, that the initiatives that are happening to drive a pipeline of diversity and talent and um, facilitate entry into um, tertiary sectors it's a very different graduating class to what would have been when for example Matt graduated university to the end of, of 2020 um, and looking out in an audience at the University of Canterbury for example um, I have never had a female boss I didn't have a female colleague until probably my 10th year of uh, working uh, and uh, for a lot of our graduates, the Kynan will be their first female boss too. Mm. It's um, it's quite a change. I think the that crossover Kynan that that you're talking about, because I am also a self-confessed non-engineer as well. Um, but one of the areas that really fascinates me is your opportunity that biology brings to engineering, and I, I'm really interested in biomimicry. Um, and, and how some of the learnings from natural systems can be applied. You know, the classic example is a termite mound um, that exists in the really hot temperature environments. And so that has been used in some pretty iconic buildings around how to manage the HVAC um, and airflows. Um, so, yes, I, I really... I really enjoy those cross-disciplinary conversations that have, and it's not one that happens commonly um, within the training of engineers, but one of the programs that I really like is the AUT um, faculty, which has combined design, creative technologies and, and engineering. And I think that kind of thinking is a really great way of being able to get that cross-fertilisation of really exciting ideas. I think... Coming back to this idea um, that you both kind of have mentioned um, around BVT wanting to change the world, um, and I read a um, transcript of your presentation at the graduation ceremony at the University of Canterbury, Matt. Can you take us through what you uh, spoke to those graduates on? Yeah, that was uh, that was a little bit daunting, to be fair. I kind of underestimated the... The, the, the gravity of, of a couple of thousand people in a room and uh, trying to give them, them some some life lessons it wasn't wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be um, the I told them that their work environment would change significantly over the next 20 to 50 years and that the um, 
the work environment that they were entering is significantly different to when I entered the workforce and vastly different to their parents. The the roles, the, um, the ability to have a single job, a single role and have confidence that that will be there for the for the rest of your life. I, I, I don't see that as being very probable in the future, almost impossible. And the amount of flexibility and creativity that you require to, to foster to be able to be successful is quite something. Um, I basically told them that, uh, yep, you've nailed your analytical mindset, done your degree, augment that with creative pursuits, learn how to dance or paint or write in your spare time, bring that into your work. I loved, um, and you can see that speech on YouTube, I think, and um, we can share that link, but I love the moment where the camera pans out across the audience and there is just such diversity of people sitting in the crowd and um, and then I think one of the, the prompts that had been given for the speech was, you know, what do you think the greatest invention is of, of kind of our lifetime? And there's all the academics sitting behind Matt listening and they've got their waterboards and their gowns and, and part of what the speech touches on is actually I think the greatest invention of our, our lifetime is the contraceptive pill. And you can see all the academics, like these very staid academics kind of going, mm, not what we were expecting from, from our alumni to be talking about. But that um, that invention and that ability for women to control their bodies and um, have freedom of choice and um, choose to enter the workforce at timings that suited them and study and move into a different different space. And again, it's that science, that's biology, that's, you know, there are, you know, so many different different aspects to that that also led to major societal change and economic levers and incentives and disruption and truly believe that that is part of our journey and that's part of what what we are really focused on doing and we're so passionate about the that conversation but also as you bring it back to if you at a very kind of in a nutshell what's our core business seismic engineering we are specialists in seismic engineering. It's that's it's not an ad, but that's what we have we've really pioneered in terms of, you know, maybe it would have taken 20 days for a design to have been completed. We're crunching that down to eight hours, we're crunching that down to 15 minutes, because if you can actually tap into that type of um, use technology and automation and codification, imagine applying that in the developing world. Imagine being able to influence um, building regulations and codes that will save millions and millions of lives globally in a really cost-effective way. You're actually shifting humanity. You're actually like taking into that next step. Um, and while we we are sitting in in downtown um, Auckland in New Zealand, um, there will be some people that think, "Oh my goodness." what are you doing all the way down there with the hobbits? You know, and it's like, well, that's also an advantage and to us because 
we have to be pioneers because we're so far away. We have to reach out into the world to different sectors, to different communities, to different countries because we can't afford to be insular. And I think that's, you know, probably much of the secret sauce that that exists not only within BVT but in the type of people we are and the type of people that we connect with and gather to help us build momentum and it's extraordinarily exciting. We have a lot of earthquakes in New Zealand. We do. That makes it a great place to um, learn about uh, seismic design. Uh, We also have a very open and accessible uh, regulatory body as well, which means that Mm -hmm. we can get in and understand how the codes are being developed, uh, what's happening next, and and influence them, which is special. Yeah, such a good point. We have... um, regulatory bodies, authorising environments, governments that are open, accessible, transparent and interested in consultation with industry, with academia, um, with individuals. And um, we're really fortunate to have that here and I've been doing some research recently which looks at um, uh, World Bank and the ease of doing business and that's, uh, you know, they're indicators that have been in place for probably close to two decades, one of those key indicators is um, the amount of time that it takes to get a construction permit. And looking at that globally, because construction permeates are something like a $3 trillion industry um, globally, and you start to drill down into some of those figures, and it's like, again, if you can make an impact on on that, how do we – that will release that latent um, – uh, productivity that's getting caught up in the regulatory burden and how amazing that we actually have governments that are like, oh, that is fascinating, can we talk, can we engage and um, we have so many opportunities to contribute and I think that's sometimes undervalued in our in our world. Yeah, I think, so what do you guys think um, is required in order to affect the massive changes that are uh a part of the process of changing the world. What does the construction industry need to do differently? What, what are the problems we need to solve? What are the opportunities that are not being addressed? There's an awful lot of uh, technical segmentation around how to solve those problems. Uh, but if you go up a few levels and you look at some of the some of the the issues that cause problems across the board. For example, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of materials waste. There's also a lot of design waste, a lot of regulatory waste, and just a lot of time wasted generally. And uh, it's wasted in the gaps between things being done. Uh, there's a lot of comparison between how manufacturing works and how construction works. And if we could just make construction more like manufacture, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't we save a whole lot of materials and time? Um, one of the key things that is a focus on manufacture is the time between stations. Like you have, you set up manufacturing stations and things happen at each station. And then the work moves from one station to the next station and you minimise that time as much as possible, down to seconds. 
in construction, that's the time that a design sits in someone's inbox before it gets actioned, the time that a job sits on site before it gets inspected. And those times can blow out to weeks without even thinking about it. You can lose months on a project just in that wait time. And nobody's even looking at it because you can't see it. It's not measured at all. It's the time between elements on a Gantt chart. It's the little black line that, that takes all the time. So when Kahneman says before 20 days to 15 minutes, well, that's because it was only 15 minutes of engineering in the job. All the rest of it was briefs bouncing back and forth, invoices, emails, getting things, getting things administered. And all of that is actually really easy to automate without touching the engineering. McKinsey have uh, done a report, which we can share with your listeners as well, um, around the status of the construction industry and how ripe it is for disruption. And it really is being touted as the next kind of industry to, to fall, if, if that's the right description. But over the last two decades, the productivity gains or improvements within um, productivity gains or improvements within the the construction industries are, I think, less than less than five percent in comparison to other industries, which are. 20, 30, 40% and the fragmentation that occurs within the construction industry and project myopia. So if a project, um, let's say we've got a big vertical um, development, apartments or a, a skyscraper or something like that, and rather than learning from each of the projects beforehand and streamlining those elements, every time we go back to beginning. And if you've got a great team on it, Fantastic, but if you've got a bad team on it, um, they get dispersed at the end. Everyone goes, "Oh my goodness, don't put them back together," and all the rest of it. And there's a lot of shame because there's a lot of money associated with liquidated damages and delays and so on. So it's almost like this collective industry. Nobody, you know, talks about it, and the and the multitude of organisations that has to has to come together. So imagine if you were able to create a future ecosystem within um, within that environment, within the construction world where you've got construction professionals that are like, we know that we can select from, um, you know, a different a canvas of, of repeatable elements that we know what's the carbon in those elements. Is this a good choice for, you know, water management? Are we thinking about these different type of things? And it's not a um, – imagine Canva. So like Canva for, you know, graphic design, some of your listeners aren't aware of that. It's basically like anyone should be able to have access to these tools to create beautiful designs. And um, if you take that, it's like you should be able to have access to the engineering components to be able to, to create, you know, uh, developments or buildings or construct in a way that gives you that surety. Build those options, build those designs that guarantees these are the outcomes that whatever is client choice and then you can get to a point where it's like press your button and that's your engineering and we truly believe that um, the problems that we are facing in our construction world are challenging in our ecosystem but if you give it to a software developer someone that's looking at it from an AI perspective and they're like oh so you're looking at data aggregation that needs to be able to do this and this and this we can write code for that 
that's the future of where we're going. Kia ora, Troy here again. If you liked what you heard today, you may be interested to know that preparing our industry for the future is something that we're very passionate about here at HERA. So much so that we've recently developed and launched our in-house Fab 4.0 lab to build a national centre of excellence in Fabrication 4.0. If you'd like to see how this resource can help your business stay ahead of technological disruption, please get in touch with us today for a free, no obligation tour of the facilities and discussion to see how we can partner and grow together. Details are in the show notes. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Kynwin and Matt today. If you'd like to connect more with them, you'll find their details in the show notes. This has been an inspiring talk, which reminds me of a quote from Glennon Doyle. You have been offered the gift of crisis. As Kathleen Norris reminds us, the Greek root of the word crisis is to sift, as in to shake out the excesses and leave only what's important. That's what crises do. Food for thought till we see you next time. So hit subscribe, and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review, or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. Thank you.